New Year, New You. Uh, it was a catchy phrase that I think around this time every year gets popped up again. Uh, new Year, New You, maybe New Year, New Me. Um, and I thought it was very fitting for this passage this morning. Uh, maybe too fitting. Uh, it might on YouTube look like I'm doing a self-help sermon. <laughs> but it fits with John so well. John is um, a man who throughout the book of 1 John speaks in ways that not only he wants to get um, at the, your head, convince you logically, but wants it to seep into your heart and then from your heart, he wants it to go into your hands, into your actions. Scripture isn't just simply something we know in our head as knowledge, but it's rather a way to live our lives, a way to pursue righteousness and pursue what God has called us to. And so this morning, as we hop into 1 John, back into 1 John, um, I'm slowly preaching through 1 John. Uh, the previous head pastor really encouraged me. He goes, you're going to preach every so often, you might as well preach through a book of the Bible. So I chose a short one. <laughs> and First John has been an amazing book to read through. And so before I hop into it, before I read the passage, I want to quickly go over context. I wrote it down even just so I don't rabbit trail. Context is king in Scripture. Before we dive in, uh, we have to know what happens before the passage and after the passage. It's very easy on social media. We post one verse and it kind of gets pulled out of context and twisted to whatever we're feeling that day. And so the verses prior to this, which I preached about about a month ago, talk about the deceitfulness of our own hearts and flesh, about how when we pursue what we want and, and what we think is best without consulting Scripture, without talking to those around us, without checking ourselves, uh, we can be led down the wrong path. That's what it means in this passage, the passage right before when it says Antichrist. It doesn't mean a specific person coming down. It means the, the attitude, the stepping of walking against what Christ is calling us to. And then if we look forward, if you, you read ahead, this passage is going to talk deeply of what it means to have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, of working in you. The Holy Spirit is the one, the helper, the great helper, Christ tells us, comes in to work in our hearts and our lives, to tear away the sin and the grime and create us anew, to be more and more like Christ every day. That love is greater than hate. And he, he pictures that in no greater picture of love than Christ's death and resurrection on the cross. That Christ humbled himself, came down, God made flesh, and we've just talked about that for a month on Christmas, this little baby in a manger. And we look forward to, in the next few months, of looking towards Easter, about what Christ did. And that he died, and they rose again from the dead, and they rose up into heaven. And then we kind of stop there. We're like, woo, Jesus. And then we forget that he's coming back. And that's what this passage talks about. It sits in between what the Holy Spirit is doing in us now, what Christ wants to save us from, our own flesh, before and now. If you read a title, probably in your Bible, it's probably labeled Children of God. And that's you, whether you are five years old or 85 years old. You are a child of God. And so I'm going to read this passage and then pray, and then we'll get into it. So if you read with me now, 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 10. And now, little children... Abide in Him, 
so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Uh, The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Holy Father, I pray you be in my head, in my thinking, in my heart, and understand my mouth and my speaking, Lord. Pray that all of us on stage back away out of the way of you, Lord. That you become the focal point of us this morning and of our lives. We pray that in this passage that was written to people thousands of years ago, Lord, it would work in our hearts and our minds so that we may become ever more like you. In your precious, most holy name, amen. So this passage is exciting and also scary because uh, it talks, uh, at first it sounds like some pretty harsh absolute. But before we get into that, I want to, my phone likes falling asleep. There we go. New year, new year. Uh, This passage focuses on three things. And the second two are predicated on the first. The first thing that this passage talks about is he's coming back. Jesus is coming back. He's not going to leave us here where we are. He didn't just show up for about 34 years um, uh, in, you know, back in the earliest A.D., 0 to 35 A.D. He didn't just show up for those people. He's coming back for us. That God is here now. His Holy Spirit is with us. God promises that wherever his people are, he is there also. And because he's coming back, these two things must be done. These two things must be pursued. I say pursued because we're not going to always get it right. But pursuing means when you fall down, you get up and you keep going. And so pursue righteousness. And so pursue love. So those are the three things I want to focus on. If you're in... The bulletin on the back, there's two questions. Uh, Don't answer those now. Don't write them. Your answers, talk about them with your family, uh, maybe just on the car ride home, or maybe just uh, think on them and sit on them yourself. I think um, 
they'll help better digest this passage. They helped me. And so he's coming back. What does that look like? Is he going to come down on a, a white horse with a sword shooting out of his mouth, his father's name tattooed on his thigh? That's what it says in Revelation. Is he going to come back as a warrior who comes and slays all of his political enemies? Well, that's who the Jewish people thought uh, 2,000 years ago was going to come back. But Jesus came back as a baby. We know that. We just celebrated that in Advent. So he's coming back again. Or he's coming back. What does that look like? Well, there's a beautiful picture throughout Scripture of what that looks like. It's constantly we're given this, this picture of a bride and a bridegroom. Or just groom. Groom might be easier for... I always was confused about that in seminary. But, but a bride, which is his church, us. If you're a believer, it's not the building. Um, it's not a Western American church. It's anyone across the world and across time who are believers in God. That's his church, his bride, and then the groom, which is Christ. You see, in the ancient world, when you got betrothed to be married, you didn't just start uh, wedding planning, and then the wedding would be out in six months or a year. You didn't have a specific date. What happened was the groom would be like, all right, we're getting married, and then he would leave, and he would go to his parents' house, Teenagers, this may scare you. But what he did was he would build a house connected to his parents' house. He would build a home connected to his family and prepare a place, prepare a domicile, not only for uh, his bride, but all those um, kids and grandkids in hopes that this complex, this house, would keep on growing. And so he would leave. And so what was the bride's job? Well, the bride had to... She had to prepare herself. She had to get ready because she didn't know when he was going to come back. There weren't text messages or real-time Twitter updates or 24-7 news outlets. She didn't know when he was going to show up. But she knew when he, he did that there would be music, there would be a party, and that's when they would get married. He would show up by walking down the street, party behind him, getting excited. We're getting married today. And she had to be ready. We see this with a lot of different pictures in Scripture, talking about um, making sure you have oil for your lamp, or listening to the one who knocks at the door. That, that God is, Christ is in heaven right now preparing a place for me and you. For Reuben, for Paul, for Jacob, for, for all of us here at New Hope. For all those who believe across the world. And He's coming back. And so we, as the bride, have to be ready. We have to prepare ourselves. And it should be something that's exciting. We know he's coming back. But if you've ever waited for something, um, it can also be frustrating. You can get impatient if you don't have all the details. I like to have all the things, all my ducks in a row, um, and know what's going to be happening. But I, uh, in 2020... In 2020, got engaged, and there was about 10 months before we got married, and we were doing long distance. My wife lived about 2,300 miles away from me in Tennessee, and I lived here. And so I was barely a part of the planning. <laughs> she did most of it, because um, she's awesome. And I had to wait, and I had to trust that what she was doing, what she was getting ready, that when I showed up uh, with my suit and my groomsmen, that's about all I was, you know, had to make sure we're there, uh, that the wedding was going to happen. 
And it was an exciting time, but it was a time that uh, I kind of got impatient. But I knew my wife was somebody to be trusted, that she would get it done, and that when it was ready on October 16th, that we would be married. And that's what happened. And it was awesome, and it's great. And it was a very, very, very small picture, a quiet picture, comparatively to what God's doing for us. That when he comes back, there will be trumpets and excitement. There's going to be a party, a community feast, an everlasting uh, reign of no more tears, no more pain. Sounds great, doesn't it? past three years have been rough on a lot of people. I would say all people, but there might be one exception. But I get very excited to think about a time where there's no more tears and no more pain. And so Advent, that we just talked about, Christmas, was another picture of that. God's promises of thousands of years of Old Testament prophecies, all the way from Genesis, from the creation of the world, God promised a Savior's coming, and the people of Israel had to wait A long time, thousands and thousands of years. But Jesus came. There was even 400 years where there was silence, where there was no prophets in between the Old and New Testament. The last book in the first book of, last book of the Old Testament, first book of the New Testament, there there was silence. There's no prophets, no books of the Bible written. Now there was miracles that happened. We look at the miracle of Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication, as it's talked about uh, in the New Testament that Christ celebrated. There's lots of God showing himself and working for the people of God. And so even now, even though there's no prophets, there's no new books of the Bible being written, uh, we know that God is living active. We see throughout Scripture God is faithful to keep his promises. That Despite us being unfaithful, despite us not being faithful, God is faithful. He's coming back. He's preparing a place. And so we're waiting. We're sitting there in our room, Dressed to the nines. Um, If I was in Mississippi, I'd be dressed to about six and a half because I needed a tie and a coat and a vest. Um, But so what do we do while we're waiting? We do two things that will take up pretty much all of our time if we do them right. And that's what these next two points are. Pursuing righteousness and pursuing love. And that's what this passage really digs into. And at first glance, it can be a scary thing because it says if you, if you keep on sinning, you're not of Christ. If you keep on sinning, you're not of God's people. And it's easy to jump our minds and think of other people and be like, oh, so they're not part of God's kingdom because they keep on sinning. But it's very hard to look at ourselves and realize we also are sinning and continue to sin. So this passage can be scary for us. Because it makes you think, am I the lawlessness that it's talking about here? Am I the one who is lawless? Because I'm not pursuing righteousness constantly every single day. Because when I stubbed my toe, I said something I shouldn't have. Somebody cut me off and I thought something I shouldn't have. Because I saw somebody had a brand new car and I don't. This is lawlessness. This Anything that is not of God, that doesn't keep our eyes focused on our Savior, is lawlessness. And so we all sadly, (laughs) commit lawlessness. And so this passage can be scary. But then it has this dichotomy. It it flips and talks about the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness that those who have hope in the gospel experience. That that those who are in Christ get to pursue righteousness. 
This passage is exciting for those uh, who, who mess up because the passage knows that we mess up and it allows for us to continue getting better. To pursue righteousness is to, re- excuse me, to realize we've messed up and to keep going. The tripping, maybe not going in the right direction for a few days, months, or years, that doesn't define the rest of our life. The past doesn't define our future because our future is set in stone for those who believe in Christ Jesus. I almost said amen after that because I was feeling a little excited. Um, but, but although we keep messing up, God's righteousness, when Christ returns, if we hope in Him, if we believe the gospel, He is faithful to look at us and say, you have done well, my good and faithful servant. Despite Reuben messing up daily, Christ is going to look at me at the end of days, not because I'm so good or because I did so well, but because what his son did will look at me and say, you have done well, my good and faithful servant. I hope that's exciting to you. But I also hope it spurs you towards trying to live a life of righteousness, living a life that opposes lawlessness. Now, what does that mean? Uh, Reuben, there's a lot of laws in the Old Testament, specifically Leviticus and Deuteronomy. I don't think I can keep up that. I like my cotton polyester blends, and I like bacon. And all these other laws, Reuben, these things I just can't do. (laughs) And what lawlessness is, what righteousness wants us to avoid, is pursuing things that aren't of God. Pursuing things that Christ hasn't called us to. For those of you who kind of uh, want a a bullet point list, uh, two really good spots for your bullet point list of sins to avoid are the Ten Commandments and not loving God and not loving your neighbor. Throughout the New Testament, Christ talks about that um, not just murder is bad, but so is hate. That even if you hate your brother or your sister or that political party, or those people on social media, or those people you drive past in your car, you have committed the sin of murder. And so Christ very poignantly, um, maybe uh, scarily, tells us to love our neighbor. That despite our own feelings, we have to get past, uh, as my dad would say, you have to get over yourself (laughs) and love those around you. That pursuing righteousness is reading God's word and trying to bear fruit. I'm not going to repeat them again because I think I say them almost every week. My students will roll their eyes if I said them all again. Um, But to pursue love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Galatians 5, 26 and 27. That those fruits come out of a life who is pursuing God's will, pursuing righteousness. But it's not something we can do on our own. As Americans, we like, as uh, the Latin is, solo bootstrappa, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Um, A Latin professor used to say that. Um, We like to do things on our own. We like the me mentality. But God tells us a different story. And it's put in a pretty great picture in a, a pretty famous book series called The Chronicles of Narnia. 
Uh, one of my favorite books out of that uh, that they kind of did a disservice to uh, theatrically was The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Um, it's, it's a great story. I really encourage you to read them. Um, and in that story, there's a character who enters in named Eustace. Um, I don't know any Eustaces, uh, but I knew that Eustace. And that Eustace was a greedy kid. <laughs> he had wants, he had desires, and he let those control his very life. So much so, he ends up getting turned into a dragon. A big, scary dragon. A confused, scared dragon. And then he meets Aslan. Aslan's kind of the um, Christ figure, God of that world. He's a big lion. And uh, Aslan tells Eustace that if he wants to be back to his normal self, non-dragon self, then he has to... um, I can't remember the exact words, but but he tells him that he needs to undress. There it is. He tells him to undress. That he has to take off that dragon that he is. Everything that he is, that he has been pursuing, he has to tear that away. And so Eustace sits there and he begins clawing. And it's just, it's a it's kind of a brutal picture if you really think about it. He tears at himself and tears and tears all these scales with his big massive claws. And he thinks he's got it all, and he gets excited, and he looks in the water, and he sees he's still a dragon. A little bit, uh, a little bit more pain than before. And he realizes he can't do it himself, and Aslan looks at him, looks directly at him, and says, Eustace, I have to undress you. And so Aslan um, reaches into the chest of the dragon and pulls out a scared, dirty little boy. He pulls out a child from the beast of a dragon and dips him in water. And Eustace comes springing up out of the water, clean, and he's Eustace again. <laughs> and it's so cool. Um, because oftentimes, maybe in not too many words, we can feel like a dragon. We can feel like our sin has overcome us, that it's gotten the best of us, that it is a beast that cannot be conquered. But brothers and sisters, the, the beautifulness of this passage, of God's word in its entirety, is that God reaches into that filth, into that muck and that mire, and pulls us up out of it. That how do we pursue righteousness is pursuing Christ. And as we pursue Christ, we have a very painful experience of removing the grit and the grime of our own hearts. It can be convicting. It can be um, unsettling. That no matter what age you're at, it's a constant work in your life. None of us have got it all figured out. None of us are a better dragon than Eustace and can pull off uh, the skin well enough. We all need a Savior to come in and change our lives. I had a friend who lived in the Dominican Republic, and uh, we worked with him teaching English, and a few months later, we had become Facebook friends. I saw that his grandfather, who was 103, had decided to follow Jesus. At 103, he lived 103 years not believing in Jesus. But his 103rd, almost 4th year, he passed away at 104, um, decided to follow Jesus. If you, if you want to do um, pictures, he must have been a very large dragon. 
But no matter how intimidating that sin, those issues, the things you don't think you can get past, the things you're like, I have hope in Christ Jesus, but I still struggle with this. There's no way that I could be seen clean. But the gospel is beautiful. The beautiful of the scripture, it says, and everyone, chapter 3, verse 3, and everyone, 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 we see our everyone, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That everyone who hopes in the gospel, everyone who believes in Christ, is having the Holy Spirit work in and through them. That each of us, as we pursue righteousness, it's very easy to get uncomfortable like, okay, I'm going to pursue someone else's righteousness. What I'm going to do instead is I'm going to focus on the splinter in someone else's eye. I don't want to deal with the log in mine. And so we pursue someone else's righteousness. When really what we need to do is we need to work on ourselves and pursue our own righteousness. Now, does that mean we can't hold people accountable or we can't help people as they also struggle through? No, we're a community. We're a body of believers. Whether you've been here one Sunday, no Sundays, or a thousand Sundays, uh, we are here together as a community, as as a group of believers. And so we must pursue righteousness. And as we pursue it, and as others pursue it around us, we must make sure that we show mercy and grace to them. Because nobody's got it all figured out. We don't have it all perfect. So we're going to mess up. And it's okay to say, I forgive you. I love you. Let's keep going. That God doesn't cut anyone out. He doesn't say anyone's beyond salvation. The good news of the gospel is no matter how far you've ran as a little sheep, even if it's been for 103 years, God is faithful to run and grab you and bring you into his community. He loves you that much. He pursues you with unquenchable thirst. And so because we're pursuing righteousness, we must pursue love. That as we are traveling, as we're going through life, that we, uh, as we see people alongside our brothers and sisters who are struggling, our brothers and sisters who may be doing great, that we must come alongside and, and be in community and do that well together. That loving our neighbor means like giving a coat to those who don't have coats. Doing a food drive uh, for those who don't have food. Listening to those who are suffering. Whether you understand the suffering or not. There's a lot of cultures, a lot of worlds in our world that we don't have a full grasp as those who live in Kent, Washington. And so sometimes it would be hard to hear someone else's struggles because that's not a struggle for us. But one of the things we get to do is sit and listen and comfort and show a little bit of that grace and mercy Christ shows us to those around us. I hope you do that because it's a hard thing to do. But it has beautiful, beautiful fruit at the end of it. Beautiful fruit. And so that hope of the gospel, of pursuing God's love, is something that that should spur us on. That loving our neighbor isn't just beating them over the head with the Bible until they come to Jesus. Sometimes it looks like walking over there and be like, hey, I know your lawnmower's broken, your yard's getting crazy, and, and it frustrates you. Let me mow your lawn. Maybe it's inviting your neighbors to a barbecue. Or maybe you're really good with your hands and you want to go fix things. Maybe you're sitting there and you're like, Reuben, 
they aren't talking about fixing cars in Scripture. And you're right, because there were no cars in Scripture. <laughs> but, but what Jesus is talking about, what John is talking about, what Scripture is talking about, what I'm talking about, is loving our neighbor. And oftentimes, as we pursue righteousness, and as that bleeds down from our heads into understanding, into our hearts, into our feelings, that it should pursue out into our actions. That if you grew up on a farm like me, uh, as you tilled the soil, made the soil really good, as you were really smart about what season to plant seeds in, that corn stalks would grow, and at the end, this really cool thing happened, corn would pop up. Fruit. I don't know if corn's a fruit, but you get the illustration. <laughs> but corn would pop up, and it's something we get to consume and enjoy and see the benefits of, of all the hard work. And it's something that took a long time. Corn you plant in the spring, you don't get it till in the fall. It's a long process, and if you were a child, and because I was a child who lived on a farm, it can get frustrating. You look at the ground, you don't see any growth. You're like, I did all this work, I know all the things, but there's no fruit yet. Brothers and sisters, God is faithful to cultivate and work in that. That we have to trust that the Holy Spirit is living and active and moving in through our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, and in our hearts and minds of the community around us. That if you really want to change the world, change our neighborhood, change um, our city, our county, our nation, uh, well, <laughs> to quote a very popular song, it, you have to look at your you want to make the world a better place, you look at yourself and make a change. Pursue righteousness. Pursue the gospel. Allow it to change you and mold you. Even if it's something you've been dealing with for 85 years, it can be something that can be changed and focused as we pursue more and more what it means to be the gospel. That a new year and a new you should be running from whatever isn't fruit-bearing. Whatever pulls you farther from the truth of the gospel, run from that. Pursue Christ. And God is faithful to make you new. Even if you've been a Christian a hundred years or if you've been a Christian for one day, God is working in you. John promises that God is faithful to look at us and call us His. Not because of what we've done, but because of what He is doing. Amen? Amen. Awesome. All right, would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly and Most Holy Father, we thank You for this book of 1 John. For this letter that was written to people 2,000 years ago, but is so applicable to us today. Lord, I pray that we don't pursue lawlessness, that we don't pursue things that are not of you, but we rather pursue you. And Lord, we pray that it changes us. And that's the hard part of the prayer. That we pursue things that change us so we can be more and more like you and less of less of what uh, our flesh wants us to be. And we pray all this in your precious and most holy name. Amen.